Hello, and welcome to episode 163 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I, uh, I'm doing all right. I'm muddling my way through the week. We've been dealing with quarantines and things. Thankfully, no one in, in our house is, is sick, but some people got sick in in the youngsters classroom. And so they've been in quarantine the beginning of the week. So that's been fun because of course, this is the week where both my wife and I have multiple engagements with people outside of our own offices and therefore have to appear to be professional. So that's been a wonderful challenge to get around, but everyone is healthy. So small mercies. That's good. How are you? I'm good. You and I have had very different weeks so far. We have. I'm not jealous at all. I'm, no, I'm not, not, I'm at not all. jealous. I, I, yeah, sure. Not at all. Are you sure? I, I feel a, a bit, a bit of, of insincerity. A, a twinge, a twinge yeah. of jealousy. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't sound accurate <laughs> to me. So, so what did you do this week? I uh, left on Sunday and returned to New York today, but I was in St. Martin of all places for the past few days. And how was Plain Spotter's Paradise? It was everything it's supposed to be. Excellent. I have not been there since I think 2016. I've been there twice before, 2014 and I think 2016. Not since the hurricane that absolutely obliterated pretty much everything on the island. Yeah. But they're yeah. still still building back. I stayed at the Ocean Point, which is I think a Sinesta property, which is right by Maho Beach. I didn't arrange it or anything, but the, the room had a balcony that happened to look over the, the bay where the aircraft fly over and had a great view of the entire runway just worked out that way and it was uh it was nice i'm not i'm not jealous i'm i'm treating this as a a reconnaissance mission on my behalf you went down there you checked things out you made sure that they're rebuilding nicely so when i eventually make it down there i'm going to know what to do and, and where to go and so i appreciate your efforts that that's how i'm spinning this in yes my direction. it was it was excellent not quite the same as the last couple of times I was down there since the aviation industry has changed quite a bit since then. I also It's also fringe off-peak season, so there's a, a bit less arrivals every day there. But gone are the days of the KLM 747 and yeah. Air France <laughs> June cough uh, rooftop bar, uh, <laughs> A340, that's, that's gone. So the, the biggest aircraft I saw was actually a KLM – a three thirty three hundred, which was nice. It wasn't a two hundred, but uh, that was the largest aircraft I, I saw while I was there, which is which is nice. But it's uh, it's it, gone are the days. You, you missed the queen. You, yeah, you I, I mean, missed you queen. missed the gone are the days yeah. of jumbo jet at St. Martin and, and and realistically most other places. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you had fun and and I do appreciate you taking one for the team and going down there to check things out for us. Yeah, I do what I can. I'm happy to report back. So <laughs> lots of lots of good aircraft. Uh, let's see, who did I see? A couple airlines I didn't even know existed. There was a, I think a Dominican airline. Maybe it was Dominican Jet Air operated with a Fokker F70, which was pretty fantastic. I haven't seen one of those in long time. And I think we discussed that the pretty much the only other ones operating are in Australia at this point. Yeah. I mean to 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 get to get a hold of one, you have to you have to pr pretty much go to uh if you want to have a realistic chance if most people want to have a realistic chance, you're gonna need to to head to Australia. Yeah. 
And I think there was an Air Caribs A330, which was a nice thing to see. Only came in once during the time I was down there. Everything else was pretty much an American 737, JetBlue, A320, United 737. That was really, really the the bulk of it. The one aircraft I did see, almost didn't see, because it, it came in on my last day there and diverted back to uh, back to Jamaica after departing bound for St. Martin. But Caribbean Airlines 737-800, I think the registration is 9YTAB, I was told that was actually its final day of commercial operations for that particular aircraft. So that was oh, that wow. was nice that I was able to catch that. Nice. Yeah. That, that's always nice when you can catch a, catch a little bit of, accidentally catch a little bit of history. I like yeah. that. Don't know if it's going to be uh, retired, broken up, or have a nice hole cut in the side and, and converted into a freighter, which I'm, I'm assuming is its fate. But Probably. I guess yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be coming to an Amazon hub airport near you soon. <laughs> yeah, likely. It is Wednesday, the 11th of May, and we're recording a little bit later today. Because of that, it seems that breaking news has occurred before we began recording. It's so fresh, we don't really know exactly what happened. But a Tibet Airlines A319 suffered a some sort of fire runway excursion in Chongqing on departure. We're still seeing if we can pull any more data than, than the initial pass that we have, which wasn't much uh, beyond a taxi out. Still breaking news, just coming out, but we're we're looking into it and we'll have a little bit more on next week's show. I just want to point out that this occurred before we started recording for once, so I can only imagine what's going to happen after we stop recording. Yes. But well, uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yes. There, there is a, a new tweet coming out of China of 53 seconds ago that says there were 113 passengers on board, no fatalities, several minor injuries, which is which is obviously always great to hear. This is very preliminary yeah. information, but any sort of preliminary information of that nature is is welcome. Yeah, absolutely. It, it looked like uh, a number of people were, were safely evacuating the aircraft in the videos that that made it onto social media so far. So hopefully we continue to to see the reports that only minor injuries. I'm moving on to to what I thought we would lead the show with this week because normally it, without that breaking news, this would lead this episode and probably nearly any other yeah, episode. You can't we, really we top were. this story. So I'm just going to quote the guy directly. This is a passenger on a Cessna 208 caravan that's flying from Marsh Harbor to Fort Pearson, Florida, getting a hold of air traffic control and saying, quote, I've got a serious situation here. My pilot has gone incoherent. I have no idea how to fly the airplane. Huh. That's uh, one thing stands out is that for someone who has no experience flying an aircraft whatsoever, Simply figuring out how to key the mic to transmit that message, that's an accomplishment in and of itself, I think. Yeah. I mean, hopefully as part of this, they they received some sort of safety briefing and and they were talking to the the pilot beforehand. But usually that safety briefing doesn't include, here's how to fly the plane in case I can't anymore. The passenger got a hold of air traffic control, air traffic control said, hey, where are you? The guy says, I have no idea. And then they they figured out where he was. They talked him down. 
And he successfully landed this Cessna caravan at Palm Beach on the runway. And the video shows it. A That's damn a great landing. landing. Yeah. <laughs> and this comes, uh, the FAA says, after the, the pilot flying initially became sick and, and fell, what they say, against the controls, putting the aircraft into a nosedive and sharp turn. So not only did the passenger successfully land the aircraft quite well on top of that, but he actually recovered the aircraft out of a, a, a nosedive and, and sharp turn to then figure out how to communicate with ATC and then land yeah. the aircraft. And the landing was so good that when air traffic control was talking to an American, I think it was an Airbus aircraft that had to uh, delay its departure or maybe arrival because of this, they, they kind of did a double take when they were having their conversation saying like, ATC said, uh, hold for that Cessna passengers just landed the plane. And they said, okay, we'll hold here. And then a couple seconds later, the, the pilot said, like, American flight go, wait, wait, did you say the pilot landed the airplane? So yeah. No, it no, was, it, it was the passenger. Yeah, yeah. Or the passenger landed the <laughs> yeah, airplane. Yeah. Sorry. It was uh it was such a good landing that even the, the commercial pilots of that American aircraft didn't think anything of it. So they were cruising along at nine thousand eight hundred and twenty-five feet, and they're approaching the Florida coast, and all of a sudden they did a they did a 90 degree turn, but they did a 90 degree turn the long way. So what is that? The 270. Yeah. So for, they go from 9,825 feet. Max vertical speed is negative 11,584 feet in the, in the 180. And then he pulls it up. So this is assuming where, where the, the passenger gains control of the aircraft, climbing back at 9,280 feet. All happens very quickly. So pilot loses slams forward on the controls. Passenger, I guess, yanks him off the controls and, and pulls it back up. And so they make it back up to, to about 9,200 feet. And at this point, they're, they're talking between the air traffic controllers and, and this passenger who, who is now the pilot. And he manages to kind of bring it over, over the coast, figure it out, and then lines it up with the runway and, and lands. I mean, this is... I. So this is crazy. There are a couple couple circumstances here that aided the miraculous landing, and that when the passengers got in touch with their traffic control, they ended up getting a, a phone number. They had a working cell phone and coverage, and they were able to call air traffic control, I think, in West Palm Beach. And, and who they ended up talking to, one of the FAA controllers, happened to be a certified flight instructor with experience on Cessna aircraft, which happens to be extremely valuable information. And they were able to uh, print out, I think, the the instrument cluster and, and the the controls for the Cessna and kind of walk the passengers through what they would need to do, whether that's flaps or I'm sure there was landing gear for this aircraft. I think it was a, a, a float plane, I think. It, 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 previously, it had previously been a float plane, but those had been removed uh, okay. prior to this. Okay. Because some of the pictures I saw had floats, some didn't. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But they were able to very expertly guide this aircraft down to the ground. Just again, one of those circumstances where everything lined up perfectly, including the aircraft on the center line of the runway. And this all happened in forty minutes. Yeah, the, like the whole the whole incident from from pilot losing the ability to operate the aircraft to the passenger landing it. Forty minutes, pretty incredible, and, and also 
these things happen. This is not the first time that FAA controllers ha- have guided a passenger to land the aircraft. I, I, I remember several of instances of this in, in the not too distant past. But unfortunately, this is not one of those very, very new aircraft that have uh, the one button push to auto land the aircraft. Right there, the that Garmin been, auto land. Yeah, that would have been a really good uh, use case for that. I, I don't think we've heard of an actual event of that happening just yet. No, but, I don't uh, think so. Proof positive that such a thing is uh, a very valuable button to be pressed, but in some cases, you don't need it. I, I mean, if if I'm this guy, do now here here's I mean, obviously, if it's me, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to go get my pilot's license. If you're this guy, I, I don't know who this guy is. Does he say I'm going to go get my pilot's license, or does he say I'm done flying? Yeah, I'm done flying. <laughs> but, but I, I landed it on my first try. I'm done. He was cool under pressure. He he says uh, we hear over the the ATC chatter that he has no flying experience, but he clearly had his wits about him and some aviation yeah, knowledge. Yeah. He was able to call out, "This is my." Descent rate. I think he said he he read out the the feet per minute of the descent or ascent. So he he clearly had some of the terminology. He knew what squat code was. They asked him for the ident button on the transponder. So there was, I think, a, a higher degree of knowledge and information than a, a your typical airline passenger. But at the end of the day, someone who's never flown an aircraft, I don't think it matters how much they know about the controls, but actually doing it. Until you sit there and do it. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, more power to them. An amazing job. We'll we'll put the link to the video and a link to the consolidated air traffic control recording in the in the show notes because as with all of these recordings there's you know it takes place over 40 minutes and there's only so much radio contact especially because they were communicating over cell phones um, where where that was a, a big help to them landing speaking of pilot training this is a very interesting update and and renewed possibility for changing how things work in becoming a pilot in the US as well as addressing the the overall pilot shortage that not is not only happening in the US but is also happening around the world this is a US specific one but it, it remains to be seen if something like this could work elsewhere i'm referring to republic airways petition to the FAA to reduce the number of hours required by pilots that attend their program to receive their restricted air transport pilot certificate. So normally that requires 1,500 hours of flight time. They're saying that their classes, training, etc., is rigorous enough that it puts them on par with military aviators and thus only should require 750 hours of flight time. This would allow them to reduce the pressure on hiring qualified pilots, they say, because their pilots are are coming through this program and are just as, as knowledgeable as as military aviators and thus don't need uh, as many flight hours to to have the same level of of knowledge and experience that 
other pilots do as far as the 1500 hour thing goes. I think this is a really interesting move. And it seems to be that they're they're doing all they can to to make this case. I mean, this was a really a really well thought out proposal. I thought I'm not sure it goes anywhere, but but they did their homework. Yeah, yeah. And this comes in response to the 1500 hour rule, which was I believe put in place after the Colgan Air crash in, in Buffalo, where the uh, the Dash Eight was on approach to Buffalo and the Pilots just didn't really seem to know what they were doing, or they were just fatigued to the point where they they couldn't figure out what they were doing. And, and now we have had this fifteen hundred hour rule for commercial for commercial pilots ever since. But it's a very interesting proposal. Uh, I, I really need to read up on it before I, I, I come up with a determination. But the the reasoning sounds like it could be perfectly legitimate, right? Yeah. No, I I don't think. I don't think they're off base here. The, the, the see, this is what happens when you go on vacation. How dare you, sir? I did not so, have a chance to read this very, no, no. very large briefing. While it's an in-depth airplane article, so or in-depth petition to to the FAA from from Republic. But so the the big criticism from the from, from the fifteen hundred hour rule is one: it's a it's an arbitrary. Our, I mean, all all numbers essentially are arbitrary in in determining how many hours are necessary and and which hours are are for these things and and which hours count and things like that. So their argument is, well, if we're going to pick an arbitrary number, let's develop our program to meet the other arbitrary number, which is the seven hundred fifty hour rule, and then. They have, you know, the ability to demonstrate that they are knowledgeable enough and skilled enough to to meet this 750 hour rule instead of the 1500 hour rule because our program is so rigorous. I I don't have the the capability. I mean, this is a question certainly for the FAA. I don't have the capability to evaluate the rigorousness of their training program, but. If it is in fact as rigorous as they say it is, this seems to make sense to me as an easy way. No, I, I don't. I wouldn't say easy way, but a sensible way to reduce the pressure on coming up with as many pilots. Obviously, this only helps Republic. So, so it's it's certainly not enough. And and one of the things and. I'm moderating a, a conference this week, which will be over by the time the podcast comes out. So we'll put a link to the show notes if anybody's interested in that. But one of the people that was talking was Steve Ehrlich, who is the chairperson of the Pilots Together charity in the UK. And that was formed during the pandemic to help raise funds, distribute funds, and provide assistance to pilots in the UK that were made redundant as part of kind of airlines response to covid and one of the things he's talking about is you know there's all of this money invested by pilots around the world people who become pilots around the world sometimes over a hundred thousand dollars hundred thousand pounds where they're spending all this money with the promised return that that job the 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 pilot career will allow them to to pay back that training expense, and then also have a sound career and, 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 a, and a sound job prospect throughout their career. And, and we get to this point where we're dealing with 
people who are investing so much. And then we say, well, there's a pilot shortage. Well, there are a lot of things and, and we could do an entire episode and we should do an entire episode on on the quote unquote pilot shortage because there are a number of people are good. There's not a pilot shortage. There's a not paying pilots enough problem. And, and so, you know, finding ways to to make it easier for people who want to become pilots to become pilots and ensure that they have skills and knowledge enough to safely operate the aircraft. If that can be done with fewer hours because the hours are more intensive and more helpful to that training, I'm all for it. Yeah. And you had mentioned that this would only aid Republic in, in churning up more pilots, but presumably this would also help any other US-based airline that has its own training program like United does these days. And I'm, I think JetBlue, maybe I'm not quite sure, but presumably if this rule were changed, any airline with its own in-house pilot training certification program would benefit from this idea where you'd cut the number of hours in half. Yeah, they 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 could, you know, somehow apply to say our program is just as rigorous as this standard and therefore we should have x number of hours for for the the certificate. I I don't see a problem with that. Certainly there are people who do and what's interesting enough is that the the pushback has been from the FAA which seems to be a problem for for republic's proposal but also airline pilot unions have said that you know the 1500 hour rule is important and there's a reason that it's there and therefore we should keep it they've been light on details the pilot unions they've been light on details thus far I think they're still getting into it, but the FAA hasn't really said much more. They've received the petition, so it'll be interesting to see what their response overall is. Yeah, definitely one thing to keep an eye on. Speaking of the FAA, this was an interesting bit of reportage from our uh, our good friend John Astar over at the Air Current, or I should say, from Elon Head and John Astar, uh, both of whom we've had on the program separately, but not since Elon Head has moved over to the Air Current. When we spoke with Elon Head, we talked about eVTOLs. She told us everything we needed to know at that time about what they were, where they were going. And one of the big things that we talked about besides the the startup-y kind of vaporware nature of some of these companies was the massive effort towards certification that was going to that was going to impact whether or not any of these companies ever got off the ground. Yeah. A lot of uh, certification timelines for eVTOL companies are about to <laughs> need updating very quickly. Yes. And so now the the reporting that, that Alam was doing culminating in the article last week was that the FAA is overhauling certification rubric that eVTOLs will be certified under. The eVTOL manufacturers were under the assumption that they would be certified under the small airplane certification rules that took effect in 2017. The FAA is now saying that they're going to certify eVTOLs as powered lift aircraft, which are the the certification framework for things like 
tilt rotor aircraft like the the Leonardo AW609 which you know is is a more akin to think of uh, the, a commercial version of the the Osprey or or something like that where they're not they're not straightforward small airplanes and that could pose a very real and very difficult problem for these EV tall manufacturers yeah, especially this late in the game where there are several of these aircraft out there in flight testing, presumably in the certification process right now, suddenly what they were aiming for for certification is, is going to be completely turned on its head seemingly overnight. More venture capital is probably going to have to be raised for some of these companies or they're just going to go, I assume they're, they're going to go bankrupt just trying to get these things certified. Uh, I don't think that's terribly bad thing, honestly. These seem to be progressing way too quickly at this point. But yet another instance of the FAA really, really taking a close look at how it certifies things. So this goes beyond Boeing at this point with the 787 and the 737 MAX. The FAA is really, really just taking a closer look at pretty much seemingly everything it does. Yeah. I, and I... I mean, we talk about pendulums, and and certainly the pendulum is swinging far, far, far into the into the regulatory enforcement and and structure side of things, um, and very, very far away from the the management delegation and delegated authority and certify your own planes. We trust you. That's gone. That is, it is very clear that all of that is just gone, and the FAA has decided that it is going to take a close look. You want to certify something that flies? Great, we're here to help. But these are the rules, and they are going to be very, very comprehensive, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. The abruptness with which this happened—that seems a little interesting to me, and that. Is something that I, I hope Alan continues to report on because I, I think that that's an interesting part of the the puzzle here. Yeah, like you said, I think this is, this is a good thing. There were a lot of these companies all pushing very aggressive timelines with some very let's call them interesting aircraft in a space that at this point does not exist. So any scrutiny they can put on these to to really ensure that their safety, especially when we're talking about single single pilot operation or, or possibly no pilot operation. <laughs> I mean, just look at what we talked about yeah. earlier today. Yeah. Anything they can do to to make sure these things are, are truly going to be safe is probably welcome at this point, as long as the FAA actually has the personnel and the skills needed to actually certify these aircraft, which at this point, I'm not totally sure they do. That, sir, I feel like is another discussion yeah. for another episode. Yes. I feel like we need to have Elon on the show now. Yeah. If it's <laughs> taking this long just point. to recertify that the 787, I can't imagine how they're going to go through certifying what seems like an endless stream of EV tolls that, that pop up out of nowhere. Ah, <sighs> That's a good question, Jason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With that's no a answer. good question. Well, that, that's, the, that's the kind of questions we like to ask on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Someone will know. It's not me. So here's a question. No, here's an answer to a question I don't think anyone asked. Brazil's goal and Colombia's Avianca will Remember, join forces. Colombia 
uh, Avianca Columbia just recently out of bankruptcy and, and gobbled up. Who, who was it? We just talked Viva. about it. Viva. Viva. So Viva. second week in a row, we're talking about Avianca doing a thing. We're moving through the clip. They will form Abra Group, so the, the open group, and it will be controlled by Avianca and Goal. And they will join forces and the word synergy was used oh, in no, no fewer – than 267 places in the press release here. Abra, which has uh, is styling itself as the Pan Latin American Network of Airlines, will they will form a group, and all of these airlines will operate independent, not independently, but operate separately. Okay, under the group. So they're the Lufthansa Group of Latin America. It seems to be that that's what is happening. Okay. So congratulations, South America. It seems like you're down to two airlines at this point, practically speaking. You've got the Latam Group and the, the Abra Group. Yeah. I, I mean, and then there's there's what, um, Aerolineas Argentinas just kind of they there. exist. They exist. So this would be a very interesting thing. The, the, the one thing I want to do is – is note that Abra will also own a non-controlling. I'm quoting the the press release here. An, a, a non-controlling 100% economic interest in Viva's operations in Colombia and Peru. I understood the words, but not the meaning of those words. How do you have 100% ownership but not control of a thing? I'm very yeah this is this is one of those things that I'm sure it makes financial and legal sense to people who are financial experts and lawyers but as an airline person and an aviation person this does not make any sense to me so if you can explain how someone has a 100% economic interest that is non-controlling over something by all means, email us at podcast at fr24.com and explain it to me because I really want to know. Yeah. We talked about this earlier in the day and it makes no more sense now than it did 12 hours ago. No, it, it certainly does not. This will, according to the airlines, provide synergies upon synergies upon synergies to ensure lower costs, expanded routes, serving a population of over $1 billion with a GDP of nearly $3 trillion. All that said, they didn't really explain how the synergies upon synergies will come about. No, especially uh, so when you interesting have to see. two independent airlines operating independently of each other. How does that work? We shall see. Okay. We shall see. Let us switch continents and go across the Atlantic Ocean and a little bit north. And we were just mentioning the Lufthansa, the new Lufthansa Group of South America. Let's talk about the actual Lufthansa Group of Lufthansaville. The Lufthansa Group purchased further state-of-the-art long-haul aircraft this week, according to Lufthansa Group. They will take 700, uh, 700. They will take seven. Wow, that's an expansion right there. It's <laughs> that's, like a Southwest like order a, or something. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Southwest and Ryanair emerging, didn't you hear? Oh, uh, synergies. Seven, yes, synergies. They will take, I, I promise we will not say synergy anymore on the rest of this podcast if we can help it. No. Seven Boeing 787-9s to compensate for the delayed 777-9 deliveries. I 
don't know how that's going to work considering they can't take deliveries of 787s right now, but but I trust that they will be able to take deliveries of 787s before 2025, which is when the now thrice delayed 777-9 will be delivered. So so this will happen. Tons of says uh some of these aircraft coming up that they will take delivery of in some cases from in 2023 and 2024 were originally intended for other airlines in 2025 and 2026. So that's that's pretty interesting right there that they'll be taking aircraft next year that weren't destined for delivery for several years from now. Yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see where where those aircraft come from, which airlines those aircraft come from, and how Lufthansa puts those aircraft into service. Because as it stands now, if they if they do take delivery of these aircraft in this compressed timeline, we're looking at a number of because they also have their initial seven eight seven order on kind of on the burner ready to go as soon as Boeing can begin deliveries of the 787 again. And so you've got this additional delivery schedule pulling from airlines that were supposed to take delivery in 2025 and 2026. So this is going to be a big chunk of aircraft coming coming into the airline at for all intents and purposes the same time. Um, so so that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and that's on top of other aircraft that Lufthansa has acquired from other airlines, like the the Philippines A350s that it's just pressed into service mm-hmm. just this past week, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see how how Lufthansa does, how they get spread among the Lufthansa group, and and how they how they introduce those aircraft into the fleet. Oh, and some A330s, I think, or A350s from Finnair ended up at uh, Lufthansa Group's Eurowings Discover. So <laughs> Lufthansa Group's a bit of a mess fleet-wise right now. It, yeah. I mean, I, I I think at this point, it's it's capacity, capacity, capacity because they – airlines – and this goes into the thing we talked about with Republic and, and airlines parking fleets and – and letting pilots go, and letting crews go, and, and all of these things, because nobody really understood at the beginning how things were going to go over the next year, two years, three years. And so now we've got kind of this wholesale change where airlines are saying, well, we parked these aircraft, we need to bring these aircraft back. Lufthansa this week said, hey, we still have the A380s sitting around. If we have to and use them, the we will. A340s. The phrasing that came out of Lufthansa, it was almost like a threat. <laughs> it, was, it was weird. If Boeing can't weird. deliver our aircraft when <laughs> we need like, them, I swear to God, we will put the A340 back in service. It was pretty much the sound of don't it. Don't make me turn this four-engine plane around. And was, then somewhere John Walton was very happy hearing that And news. that's okay. The The other interesting thing is that they, Lufthansa Cargo will take seven triple seven dash eight fs beginning in 2027. In the bridge years before that, Lufthansa will take three triple seven Fs. Two least ones will be extended. And this is the interesting bit. And, and I've had a conversation with a couple people about where this one might be coming from. So they ordered two new triple seven Fs. So direct from Boeing, right from the factory. One of the three that Lufthansa is picking up is. Flying with another airline, 
quote, will be reassigned to Lufthansa Cargo in the upcoming weeks. So the the language parsing reading between the lines here is that this is a leased 777F that is going back to the lesser and then being reassigned within the the coming weeks. We talked We've had Gavin Warbeloff on, on the program, our resident numbers expert. His working theory is that this is the Airbridge cargo, the singular Airbridge cargo 777F that is going to go back to its lesser and then come to, to Lufthansa. And so I, I don't know if he's right, but the, the timing and the opportunity would fit, assuming they can get that plane out of Moscow and you know, anywhere else. Yeah, that's a big if. That's a big if. Uh, so, so this is an interesting order because it's another large airline backfilling delayed aircraft orders, and, and and this is what we've seen over over and over again because of the the aircraft that were parked or stored or or discarded during the pandemic or during the early days of the pandemic. And now airlines coming back and going, okay, we've got some delayed programs that we're dealing with. And now we have to start backfilling either with new aircraft orders or finding aircraft that are existing somewhere in the world, looking at Lufthansa and the Philippine A350s, finding those and putting those into service. Kind of along the same vein, Emirates said this week that they expect their 787s to be delayed at least a year, leading to further reliance on their existing fleet and delaying some of the some of the drawdown of their triple uh, seven and a three eighty fleet. So that'll be really interesting to see how Emirates, especially given the size of their wide body orders writ large, the seven eight seven the. 777-9s, all of those. It'll be very interesting to see how that plays out as well. Yeah. And remember, I, we just talked about this uh, maybe last week or a couple of weeks ago, but Boeing is, is ramping up capacity to produce more 777 freighters, the current generation, in as a stopgap measure since they can't get the, the 777X out. They're reusing that capacity to, to churn out more 777 freighters. And it seems like Lufthansa jumped at that opportunity to order some additional. Might, I mean, might as well pick up a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, given how strong the cargo market has been, on the other side, we'll see how strong the cargo market continues to be over the next couple of years to see if that was a, a decision worth taking. But again, the timelines on these things are so long that you have to, you know, take your decision with the information that you have now and then hope that it all works out. Speaking of taking decisions and then hoping it all works out, going back to crew shortages, this is an interesting one from EasyJet. EasyJet and some other airlines are taking out seats in their aircraft so that they can fly with fewer crew. They have staff staff shortages because of the density of their fleet. They are required to have a uh, a fourth cabin crew member. They're A three nineteens. If they take out a row of seats, they can go down to three crew members. This is something that is not uncommon. What's interesting to me is that they're taking the seats out rather than just blocking them. I it was American Airlines used to block, I think, the middle seats on rows 16 and 17 in their 
800 fleet to stay below that number so that they could operate with three crew members. When they densified their aircrafts, they blew past that 150 seat count and and therefore it didn't matter anymore. So those block seats went away. But that was a nice perk while it lasted. Yeah. And we've, we've seen things like this happen before, but they're typically well-orchestrated, well-planned out way in advance. Years ago, JetBlue did the opposite of what EasyJet is doing now, where not the opposite, but they didn't just remove the seats, they reconfigured the cabins to actually have fewer seats on the aircraft to do the exact thing here, to, to have one fewer member of the cabin crew on board, not because of an emergency response to crew shortage just to reduce costs. So I guess they did the math and figured, yeah, there are fewer passengers, but it's fine because it's fewer crew we have to pay. But in that case, the the physical seats were removed and and every other row was granted some fraction of an inch of extra legroom. But in this case, they're just physically removing the seat and there's just a gap at the back of the aircraft where there's just nothing, no seats. Yeah, just a gap. I mean, I I guess – Anytime you reduce the weight of the aircraft, you're reducing fuel burn and you're saving money. So it's it's a dual purpose thing. It's just interesting to me that this is going to be a long enough term solution that they're they find it worthwhile to actually reduce the number of seats on the aircraft rather than technically reducing the number of seats yeah, well, it, on the aircraft. It's good to see because you introduced the topic by saying taking orders and hoping things work out, which for some airlines Leading up to this summer seems to have been the the operational mantra. Let's let's throw things at the wall and hope it all works out for the best. So it, it's good to see that some airlines are at least responding to it in rather creative ways to get some semblance of operational rea- reliability back. Uh, this is a crazy way to have to do it, but it's uh, hopefully it works. Seems like it can't possibly hurt, except for the passengers will have to bump off those flights that now have. Three fewer seats? Uh, six. Six I think, fewer right? seats, yeah. Yeah. So, a row. Uh, a row. It's a trade off. <laughs> it is a trade off. Let's shift gears and talk about something that should not have happened, but did. And it all, everything happened and, and everything went well in the end. But this was a, a, a bit of a scare in Mexico City. Two Volaris aircraft were operating at Mexico City. One was on approach, Volaris 799 was on approach, and Volaris 4069 was ready to depart. And the um, Volaris 799 was cleared to land while 4069 was still on the runway. Not good. Uh, Not good. Not good at all. The the error was caught before anything terrible could happen. 799 went around and safely landed a short time later. Things went as they should once the error was recognized. However, the aircraft came quite close to each other. They they were they were not not a safe distance apart, no, shall we say. Shades of the Air Canada incident in San Francisco a few years ago, but with much higher resolution video. Yes. So link to the video in the show notes as as, as requested by by everyone. And we'll also put a link to the to the data in the show notes to show you kind of what we're talking about. Thankfully, everything was uh 
was okay. Everyone on both aircraft were were okay. Both aircraft arrived at their intended destinations safely. But we'll we'll put a link to the video in the show notes, and you can kind of see what we're talking about. And it's, yeah, uh, it's it's iffy. Yeah, and uh, moving some things around here, but let's continue on the theme of things that happened but probably shouldn't have happened. Where do we go from here? This isn't. This is a fascinating it one to me because a it's where credit is due to to Virgin Atlantic, because certainly you never want these things to happen, but because Virgin Atlantic's training and certification requirements are above that of of the CAA in the UK, they had to turn back because the FO had not yet taken. The Virgin Atlantic test to to allow to allow them to become operationally ready for their flights. They they have a pilot's license. They have all the the certifications and qualifications. They are fully trained, et cetera, et cetera. But they hadn't taken a specific test that ensures that the pilots are ready for operational duty. So. There was a rostering error because the captain that they were flying with was not was not trained on evaluating and and, and conducting that test. The rostering error was discovered somewhere over Ireland, and the aircraft turned around and came back. There was a short delay while they found another crew member, and then they were off once again. But a fascinating look at, at how regimented and specific pilot training is and how specific and regimented pilot qualifications are you know good good on virgin i say yeah definitely not something that should have happened but really great to see that they would have well handled mistake. well handled yeah well handled and caught their own mistake and recalled the flight basically they they very easily could have and with no ramifications whatsoever let that flight continue but they they opted not to yeah. Let us move to the the end section of the show to talk about wireless things. Well, actually, some wired things, finally. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get there in a minute. So let's talk well, about- This is still in the, the section of, of things that shouldn't have happened, but did anyway. <laughs> We're still in the okay. same section. Fair enough. Tell me what's going on. So, I, I say remember, tell me what's going on. Remember, well, no one knows what's going on. That's the problem. Okay. But remember a few months ago when planes were going to drop out of the sky because Verizon and AT&T were turning on C-band 5G? Yes. And remember how that that didn't really happen, but lots of paperwork prevented flights from operating and all that. And no one really did their homework before they tried to turn it in and graduate. But it turns out that uh, today, <laughs> the uh, FAA had a meeting with some airlines and we, we don't have the results of this conversation, but it turns out that they do want to make a push to retrofit and ultimately replace some radio altimeters that could be susceptible to C-band 5G. Again, this is the kind of thing that should have been figured out several years ago and all the work should have been done before any of this was activated. But things are still very much in limbo at this point. There, there are, it turns out, some altimeters that could be affected by C-band 5G, seemingly nothing that can't be overcome with some paperwork. But this is still something that's going on. And the current, I guess the 
agreement on the network deployment limitations expires, I think, on July 5th. So we could be running up against that deadline and, and just a, a couple months from now. Fantastic. Again, yeah. And I, I don't even really understand where we are today because I was just at JFK in an airport that's supposed to have a C-band 5G buffer around it. And I, I had great C-band 5G coverage with Verizon all throughout the airport. So that's that's something. In the terminal, on the airplane, at the gate, uh, on the train, outside of the airport. I, I, I do not understand what is going on with CPAND in relation to this industry. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's a good summation of it. Yeah, yeah. Here's what does make sense. Southwest has finally seen the light. No. What are they doing? Yes. What are, they, are, are they finally going to install Wi-Fi that works? Yes, are they, and are they finally going to install power? Well, not power outlets, but USB ports. They're at least going to give you the ability to charge your phone or iPad. I, I suppose you could charge your computer very, very slowly. No, if you have a these USB-C will be sixty computer. watt USB C ports. So uh, okay, so charge away. Your computer will be able to. Yeah, you're ready to go. So the. So, so Southwest is, and Jason can speak more to the Wi-Fi aspect of it, but the power thing is something that has become kind of a pet peeve of mine not just over you. the years. Well, not no, certainly not just me. More so people that, that fly Southwest on a regular basis or fly longer flights on Southwest on a regular basis. Going back years and years and years and years ago, I was at a Southwest Media Days when they introduced the new livery and they were talking about refreshing the cabin. And one of the questions that I had was, okay, what are you going to do to the cabins? They're like, we're going to make it look prettier. I was, you're not going to do power or anything like that? And they're like, no, we don't need it. Our flights are short. At the time, the, the argument was people don't have that many devices. People can charge the devices in the airport and our flights are short enough that when they land, they will have plenty of power to do whatever they want to do. Well, lo, these many years later, that wasn't even remotely anywhere near true anymore. Fine if you're flying from what uh, somewhere in California to to Vegas or, or something like that, or or intra Texas, I guess. But anywhere else, I mean, the stage lengths are long enough that you've gotten to the point where if you don't have a fully charged cell phone with an external battery, you're probably going to you know, if you're using your phone as in-flight entertainment, you're probably going to run up against some battery limitation issues. They apparently finally agree with me and have decided that they're going to begin installing USB-C charging ports in the cabins. Yeah, to a degree. There's some caveats here. Where caveat me, Jason. Caveat, caveat me. So Southwest being one of the largest airlines in the world currently with 734 aircraft, it's only going to be installing these USB ports on the 737 MAX fleet. They begin, I think they said later this year, this fall, they'll, they'll go back and install on the, the MAX 8s they already have and any future deliveries of the MAX. But the uh, nearly, let's see, seven, what is it, oh, nearly 700 NGs they have will not be seeing USB ports, which is a shame because Southwest has actually been a, a pioneer of, of in-flight Wi-Fi. They, they had it very early on fleet-wide. They had gate-to-gate Wi-Fi, which was great. It has 
been a, a long and bumpy road for Wi-Fi and Southwest. It, it, nobody has been particularly happy about the performance, but it's there. And they also have streaming. At least of all Southwest. Yeah, at least of all Southwest. Yeah. And they have streaming wi- entertainment for free and they have live TV, but you can't plug in your phone. And streaming on your own device on a five-hour flight, you're going to end up with a dead battery at the end. There's no way around that. So it's it's good to see them finally acknowledge that, but sad to see it limited to the Max 8, to the Max family of aircraft only, since that is really almost, I'm not going to say an insignificant portion of the fleet, but at this point, it, it really actually is. Yes. At this very moment, it is in, 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 you know, 92 out of 600, or yeah, 92 out of 763 total, 92 versus 666 NGs in, in the fleet. So it's at this point, it is an insignificant number, but it's a significant change in the posture of the airline and one that I think is long, long overdue. Yeah. I, I mean, e- even at this point, most mainline European airlines, and even some low cost European airlines have, have made power or USB or even Wi Fi. Available, even airlines like uh, BA, Air France, KLM, SAS—they—they've all done this at this point. It's pretty commonplace. So Southwest is really one of the largest holdouts in the world, and I'm sure this will be a a, a much welcomed improvement. But at this point, also a very hard to pin down improvement. So it's not something you'll be able to actually count on getting on your aircraft, especially with the amount of uh, swaps they seem to have where they'll, they'll, they'll sell you a max flight up until the day of where it suddenly becomes a, an NG. The, the beauty of, a, um, uh, of a, a consistent fleet. Yeah. Uh, for most of their flights, unless it needs to be ETOPS, it really, really doesn't matter what you end up on. This has been quite the episode. Many, the many episode synergies been. were had in this episode. <laughs> Oh, I, I promised we wouldn't say it anymore. You promised now that. Now you've made me a liar. In any case, this has been episode 163 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.